Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. And greetings to everyone this morning. Happy Daylight Savings Time. I love Daylight Savings Time. I wish it would go all year. I know it causes hardships for kids going to school in the morning, but I like that extra hour of daylight to be stressed out at the end of the day and get more work done. So I welcome it. And I'm glad you're with us today, uh, here or online. Greetings to you. Um, going to speak today from Hebrews chapter 1. And the message is called, Jesus Gets the Final Word. While you're turning there, if you are, you're, um, this is an example of the, one of the pages of our recent newsletter. I, you can keep in touch by getting on our newsletter or scanning that QR code, which is on the back in bigger form, and easily get in touch with all of our resources and stay in touch and, and keep up. And I really appreciate it, if you would, and pray for us. That would be great. So... There's that. And I did bring just a few books of uh, fishing books and Simply by Grace because those are the books people always say they're giving away. So if you're giving away, I'll replenish your supplies. So uh, just you can drop a gift or just take one if you want it, but it, it doesn't matter. I can't make change today. Um, so Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, the introduction to the book of Hebrews. I think one of the art of being, part of the art of being a child is to Learn when your parents really mean it, right? And maybe the art of being a parent is teaching your children when you really mean it. You've seen every parent, especially out in public, saying, stop that, I'm going to spank you, stop that, I'm going to stop that, stop that, ten times. Well, I decided in my parenting, I'm not going to do that, you know. Uh, you know a parent's getting serious sometimes by the tone of their voice, but that doesn't necessarily stop the bad behavior. You notice, know that uh, parents can get serious when they use your middle name, but that doesn't necessarily stop. But what I learned was the system that I used parenting. I'm not, I certainly wasn't a perfect parent, but it worked most of the time, is I used the old Awana account from the Awana ministry. You go, one, so there, you got your attention. Two, they're starting to shave up. They know that if I get to three... That's it. That's my final word. And they're going to suffer consequences. So they know to listen for the final word from the parent. What we have discussed today in Hebrews chapter 1 in the introduction is Jesus as God's final word, the final and fullest revelation. The book of Hebrews is really about the superiority of Christ, written to Hebrew Christians who were tempted to go back under the law to escape persecution. That's pretty much a consensus view of what the book of Hebrews is written, who it's written to. Uh, many people think it's not written to believers, but it's so clear in the book that it's written to believers by the things that he says, and even what, he, what we'll see today. And so by being, be going back under the Jewish system, they could escape Roman persecution because the Romans were familiar with Judaism. But what was this cultic sect called Christianity? They suspected them and they persecuted Christians. So they could find safety by going under the law. But the argument of Hebrews is you don't want to go back. You want to go forward. 
And the law is obsolete. The law is done away with. Jesus is the final word from God. Look to him. He is better. That becomes an important word in the book of Hebrews. He's more excellent. He's better. He's preeminent. That, that theme rises throughout. Therefore, keep going forward in your Christian life and look to him for the grace to do that. He's superior over old, older revelation. He's superior over the angels. He's uh, superior in, in his priesthood as a king. In every way, he is superior. So if we were to look ahead to just chapter 2, we see something like this, that what I just said, he's superior over revelation, the angels. And then there, we'll just end with a quick application from chapter 2, where there's the first of five warnings written to the book of Hebrews. So let's talk about the superiority of Christ over the old revelation. In verse 1, we read, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past, to the fathers by the prophets. God spoke. God's word, his message came to our spiritual ancestors through the prophets, beginning with Moses all the way to Malachi. We have the words of God speaking, his message, his logos. When we come to the New Testament, we find out that that logos is Jesus Christ. The word, Jesus is the word, the word was God. And so Jesus is superior over to over older revelation. Um, his word has the ultimate significance for us. The Messiah that was anticipated from the very first prediction in Genesis 3.15 that he would come and he would crush the serpent's head, uh, tracing it through the book, uh, the Abrahamic covenant and and, and Jacob's prediction of a king who would have a scepter and into the book of Numbers that tells more about the king and the law that depicted him and, and foreshadowed him by the sacrifices and the celebration days. In every way, these prophets would predict him, filling in information as it goes along. We call it progressive revelation. The gospel never changed, but it just got filled in. More and more information is given. So he'll be, he'll be called um, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. The government will be upon his shoulders. And this Messiah would suffer and he would die for sins and he would be born in Bethlehem and he would come to Jerusalem riding on a colt and so forth. More and more is filled in. The layers of, are peeled back until finally the New Testament. Jesus comes, he reveals himself and he speaks to us. And since he is, there's no fuller revelation, there's no, there's no addendum to what he says. We, we know everything we're going to know through Jesus Christ. That's how significant and important his words are. So if everybody pointed to him, what we're getting at is that we need to listen to Jesus. But he goes on and adds some things. Seven sayings come out in verses 2 and 3 about Jesus, his superiority. And these seven sayings are about him. And they're in just two verses. Verse 2 says, He has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Wow, there's a lot there, so we better get going. Seven sayings about Jesus Christ. The major assertion, of course, is what we just said, that God in these last days has spoken to us by his Son. So there's some urgency and significance attached to that. And here's what he says about 
and uh, his son before he tells us what the son says to us. First of all, he is in, in chapter 1, verse 2, just the first part, he is God's ultimate message. That's what we looked at. And then it goes on to say that he is uh, the heir of all things. And by the way, I should mention Luke 24, where Jesus took his disciples aside after his resurrection on the road to Emmaus. And it says there that uh, these words, Jesus said, these words which I spoke to you while I was with you, that all things must be filled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. So here he was, the fulfillment of all those prophets and, and, uh, and Moses and the Psalms, right standing with them. What a wonderful Bible study lesson that would have been. So in these sayings then, these seven sayings, he's just describing the nature and the work of Jesus Christ. And the first, after the first saying, initial saying, which sets the pace, he is the heir of all things. In other words, he is going to inherit everything that God has in store for him. God is going to give him the kingdom. He's going to inherit all the nations. They're all going to be subjected to him. We read in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, he is the heir. Luckily, not luckily, by God's plan, we're going to be co-heirs with him. We get to share in that, that kingdom in various ways. But he, when it talks about him becoming the heir, and Hebrews 1 goes on to cite Psalm 2 as a psalm where the Messiah is installed as the king. Actually, he's probably talking about David the king, but it's messianic, and it's foreshadowing Jesus becoming the Davidic king on the Davidic throne in the kingdom of God. Um, you, today, uh, you are my son. How does he say it? You are my son. Today I have begotten you. That's in verse 5. So that's when Jesus is installed as the kingdom and actually officially given all the kingdoms and nations of the world, he becomes the heir of all that God had for him. And we will participate in that. And then he is the creator of all things. And that comes out in the very next part. He, through whom all through whom also he made the worlds. The worlds is speaking of not epics of time, as some, some think the world, word may be used, but is actually talking about the creation of the universe. God, through Jesus Christ, created everything in this universe. That thought is repeated in John chapter 1, verse 1 to 3, and repeated in Colossians chapter 1, where everything was made through him. Um, Hebrews 11 also repeats that truth. It's just a truth going through the New Testament that Jesus is God's ultimate revelation is the one who created all things. So it brings us back to the beginning. He's been there all along. He's been active all along. The next thing has to do with uh, him being a revealer of God himself. He manifests God's glory, who being the brightness of his glory, the brightness of his glory. Um, Another way of putting that is his radiance is, or shining forth. The word comes from the word sunshine. And so it's not a reflected glory. It's the actual glory of God himself, which he had to veil while he was with us because we could not behold him in his full glory. But John chapter 1, verse 14 and verse 18 tell us that we beheld his glory. We could, by looking at him, know what God was like. So Jesus is the radiance, the divine radiance of God. We behold God's glory by looking at Jesus Christ. 
not his full glory. He had to conceal some from us or temporarily, but we see the power of God in his miracles. We see omniscience of God and him knowing all things. We, we see the omnipresence of God by him being able to be different places, uh, almost like transported, I guess we would say. Now, in verse 3, he goes on to say he's, he's uh, the ultimate expression of God. Uh, and the express image of his person is the way the New King James puts it. The express image of his person. That word image in the Greek language, if I were to say it, it would sound like pretty much like the word character. God, Jesus, expresses God's character. Just like uh, the word was used for an impression that a die would make on a piece of metal so you would get a coin and the coin would come out looking like the emperor or well, let's use George Washington for example. We know what George Washington looks like because we look at a coin we see his head and we know what the die looks like because he's made that impression. It, it's a characterization of the die. And so Jesus is the image of God and by looking at him and his life his expressions, his teaching, we get a reflection of what God is like. Um, it's translated in different ways in different versions. Some say, uh, instead of image, they say his person or God's nature or his being. But what it's talking about is the essence of a person, the essential being. So Jesus expresses the essential person or being of God himself. He participates completely in God's deity. And who could better reveal the Father than the Son? You know, we say the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, meaning that the Son is like the Father, or we say He's His Father's Son, meaning, again, the Son is like the Father. Well, Jesus is like His Father. He could best reveal Him to us and express Him to us. In verse 3, He is the sustainer of all things. In other words, he brings everything to their final purpose. He upholds things by the power, word of his power. The word uphold means to bear something along to its final destiny. And so Jesus is upholding the world, the creation, bearing it along to its final and full redemption. Romans chapter 8, we're groaning until then, but it'll finally reach its destination in the new heavens and you earth, Jesus is carrying it along. He is sustaining it. And that is what I meant to say is in the present tense. So it's something that's ongoing even today. Jesus is undergirding history and creation to make sure it gets to his final destination. So the idea of ruling is here also in this idea of sustaining things. If his word is so powerful, what the author is getting at, if his word is so powerful and controls all things, then we really need to listen to Jesus. And then it talks about redemption, him as a redeemer at the end of verse 3. He is the redeemer. He finally purged us from our sins. It says, when he has by himself purged all our sins. This is kind of a priestly image and introduces a priestly theme, which he carries through the book of Hebrews, especially the first part of the book of Hebrews, that Jesus is a superior high priest because it was a priest who offered sacrifices on the altar for the forgiveness of sins. And so those sacrifices pointed to Jesus. But as Hebrews tells us later, the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sin. 
there had to be a final sacrifice. And it tells us that Jesus is that final sacrifice. He took away sins once and for all. He is the Redeemer. In the words here, He has by Himself purged all our sins. He didn't need our help. He didn't need the help of animals. He did it by Himself because only He was a perfect sacrifice and a suitable sacrifice to God. And because of that, all of our sins are purged, washed away, done away with. Isn't that a wonderful thought? When you think about your sins, I hope it is, that God, through Jesus Christ, offers the forgiveness of sins as if we've never sinned in God's eyes before when we know Him as our Savior and our Redeemer. And then you know what He did? It says it's, He sat down. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So why did he sit down? His work was finished. A priest was always standing doing his work before the altar. When he's finished, he could sit down. So Jesus sits down at the right hand, the place of power and authority and exaltation, the right hand of God, because his work was finished. This reminds us of the progression we see in Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, where it talks about where Jesus uh, became like a slave and uh, submitted himself to God, became like a slave and, and, and took on a body of flesh. And because of that, it says God has highly exalted him, given him a very privileged and powerful position at his right hand because he humbled himself even to death, to the point of death. So he's our Redeemer. And then he goes on in a lengthy section, but we'll just introduce it in verse 4 by saying Christ is over and showing that Christ is over the angels. Why the attention given to angels? Because the angels were the ones who mediated the law. They brought the law down to Moses. And so angels tended to be venerated by the Jewish people. They made their appearances a number of times in the Old and New Testaments. And so they were given a very high place of respect and authority. But Jesus is superior to angels. You know, even cults today tend to worship spirit, spirit beings, and probably demons is what I would say they are. They might think that they're angels, and they're listening to angels. So the spirit beings are still elevated today, but what Hebrews is telling us is that Jesus is far superior over any of these spiritual beings. Um, and then it says something very interesting about these angels. He quotes the Old Testament in a number of places. Uh, you know, to which of the angels did he ever say, you're my son, today I've begotten you. Angels couldn't be the son of God. I like verse 8. I think it's a wonderful verse. Um, but to the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. God is calling Jesus, his son, God. What a wonderful text for the deity of Christ. But that could not be said of any angel. What higher acclamation or designation could be given to him than calling Jesus God? And so the author is just hammering this theme that Jesus is superior in every way. And first he tackles his superiority over the angels. He comes down, if we would look at uh, verse 14... Talking about angels, he says, Are they not all ministering spirits and sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? So the author asks the question, Aren't these angels 
ministering spirits, well, who are they ministering to? They're ministering to us who will inherit salvation. So they're even subordinate to us as believers. Now, what does he mean, though, those who will inherit salvation? This is an interesting phrase because it makes salvation, the word salvation being used here in the future tense. We know that when we talk about salvation, we sometimes talk about the three tenses of salvation. We were saved from the penalty of sin. We are being saved from um, the practice of sin and or the power of sin, some say. And we will be saved from the very presence of sin. Here's a little clue for you as you study the book of Hebrews, which sometimes messes people up when they misunderstand the word salvation. The word salvation in Hebrews is always future. The whole cast of the book is looking to the future. Everything is about the future. So press on in this life. Continue to be faithful in this life because you have an inheritance. You, you will enjoy your salvation in the future at a deeper level, a more significant level. What you, how you behave, you believe in salvation, you behave for the, your future rewards. Something like that. Harley, very good. Yeah, there you go. Compensation. So what we do today matters tomorrow. And so the whole book of Hebrews has encouraged people to press forward and endure to that end so that they can inherit the fullness of their salvation. And so he's building up to that by showing Christ is superior over the angels. Um, he's the son, he's the king, he's eternal, and he's exalted. And besides that, angels were sent to minister to us who will inherit, enjoy that salvation in the future. Well, so far, let's conclude this. First, Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God. There can be no final, more final, or more full revelation of God than Jesus. Greater than all the prophets before him, greater than the angels as much as, as they are revered, they are still an inferior revelation and disclosure of who Jesus actually is. And since he is God's preeminent son, listen to him. That's not exactly... The words of the scriptures, but isn't that the implication? Jesus is God's final word to us. Duh. Listen. Listen to him. That's the implication of all that the author has said. And don't, then he goes on to say, don't neglect your future inheritance in the kingdom of God by not progressing in your faith. And this introduces the first warning, which we don't really have time to get into. There's five warnings in the book of Hebrews, but let's just look at it quickly at the beginning of chapter 2. Because if the author of Hebrews is saying, listen to him, well, okay, so what do we do? Well, he says in chapter 2, verse 1, therefore we must give the more earnest heed. Be more careful. Listen carefully to the things that we have heard, the things that Jesus taught, lest we drift away. He's talking to we, Christians, drift away from that truth. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we, Christians, escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, God also bearing witness, both with signs and wonders, various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. He's simply saying that we should be careful to listen to Jesus Christ and what he has taught us. And it's confirmed by those who heard him, by the miracles that we saw, and the gifts and wonders of the Holy Spirit. And, and his argument is this, 
if what was given through angels, and he's referring to the law there, I believe, had its consequences, every transgression um, was, was punished and disobedience was punished. If that was true of the law, how much more will it be true of those who neglect the final word that came to us through Jesus Christ? So if it was bad news to ignore the law and not progress in our understanding and practice of it, I say us as the Jewish nation, how much greater consequences will be suffered by those who persist in the greater, or fail to persist in the greater revelation that Jesus Christ brought us? You see the reasoning there that the book of the author is using in the book of Hebrews? Greater revelation, the final word of God, greater consequences for disobeying it or drifting away from it. What's the opposite of drifting away from something? Persisting in it. And that's why we read in the book of Hebrews the word endure to the end, persevere. Those words come out. It's all about persevering through faith, accessing his grace to do it. Not in our own strength, but coming before the throne of grace. We could go on and on, but I'd be teaching the whole book of Hebrews, wouldn't I? So that's what I think he's building to is this first warning here that God has spoken finally through Jesus Christ. Listen carefully to him. And if he punished people under the law for disobedience, be careful that you neglect your future salvation, your final deliverance from all evil and, and other powers, your final deliverance into your eternity is the way he's using the word. If you neglect that, if you lose sight of that goal, how great will the consequences be? And he goes into more detail about the consequences in the other warnings, and they become more severe as the book progresses. Although he doesn't spell out exactly what will happen. He just says it's really bad. <laughs> and that should be enough for us, right? It's enough when your parents say, you don't want to do that. It's going to be really bad for you if you do. I think that ought to put the fear of God in you. And that's kind of what the author of Hebrews does. He doesn't say exactly what the consequences are, but he says they're going to be worse than death in chapter 10. It's going to be like a consuming fire. God's going to be angry, but it's better to fall into the hands of a living God than to fall out of his hands. So at least there's still mercy there for those who would repent. But the whole point of the book of Hebrews really comes out in chapter 5 and 6. I'm not going to preach that either, but... He talks about, you know, you're babes in Christ, but you should be mature. You should be teachers by now. Why aren't you growing? And that's the message that we need to listen to from the Lord Jesus Christ. We should be growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Part of that means that we're living our lives according to his principles, by grace, through faith. And part of that is that we're sharing the gospel with other people. By, again, by grace, through faith, trusting him as we do. So this is a very serious word spoken to us who are believers today. And we can learn from it, even though it was spoken to Jewish believers then, who were intimidated about going forward in the Christian faith. Today, there are many reasons we might find to neglect our future inheritance by living a lazy life, a neglectful life, a blatantly sinful life, an irresponsible life, how much better to find out what God has instructed us to do through Jesus Christ, the final word, and live according to those words. And then 
Make disciples of all nations, teaching them to what? To observe everything that I have commanded you. So part of that is teaching others to do what we ourselves know is right. So this passage is written to Christians, an introduction to a book that is written to get people to move forward, mature in their Christian life, and not neglect their future, but to keep it always in sight and in mind. It was written to Christians, but if God's word is so final and powerful through Jesus Christ, how much more is the message to those who are unbelievers? Because Jesus himself said in John chapter 3, 18, those who have not believed are condemned already. And how serious it is to neglect the very offer of salvation through Jesus Christ. So let's be sure first, before we worry about persisting in, into the future, let's first be sure that our issues of eternal life and salvation are settled. We know that Jesus has purged us from our sins and cleansed us from our sins, and he offers the gift of eternal life to anyone who believes on him as our Savior because he paid for that price. He purged, purged us by paying the price on the cross and then by rising from the dead. And that's what we're going to remember here in just a moment in our communion service. Remind ourselves that it was Jesus' sacrifice that purged us from our sins. To get us on that path to a future inheritance in the kingdom of God begins by knowing Jesus Christ as Savior, by saying, Lord, I'm a sinner. Thank you for sending Jesus to die for my sins. I trust that he is alive today, and I ask him for the gift of eternal life, which he promised to give, and I want to thank you for it. It's as simple as that. You don't have to join a church. You don't have to reform your behavior, although he will ask you to do that maybe. But that's not what gets you salvation. It's faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior. Receiving the gift of eternal life from him. In a moment, we're going to observe the Lord's Supper. So as I close in prayer today, um, uh, I invite the men who are going to help with the supper to get in their positions. And we have the privilege then of remembering this Savior who purged our sins. So let me pray. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. How magnificent a picture is painted for us in the words of this book. And how impactful and weighty they are to know that this is his final word. This is the last call. This is the number three. There's not going to be another warning. There's not going to be any other revelation. There's not going to be any other gospel revealed. There's not going to be any other prophet's words that are going to add anything to what you have said through Jesus Christ. We take it seriously. So give us by your grace the faith to continue to walk in his words and to heed them carefully. And now we thank you for the opportunity to remember what Jesus has done on the cross by the shedding of his blood, by the giving of his body in this communion service. We ask your special blessing now as we remember in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace at gracelife.org. See you next time.